Welcome to Circonomy, the Connecticut Economic Resource Center's podcast, where we share insights into strategies, initiatives, and programs to help grow and support Connecticut's economy. CIRC offers a complete range of services and assistance to build your local economy, make informed decisions, find location opportunities, and grow businesses. Learn more about CIRC at CIRC.com. That's C-E-R-C.com. Hi, this is Courtney Hendrickson, Vice President of Municipal Services at CERC, Connecticut Economic Resource Center. And today we're happy to be joined by John Guzkowski, who's the lead planner and community developer with CME Associates in Stores, Connecticut. Welcome, John. Thank you, Courtney. It's good to see, good to be with you. Today, we're going to talk about several issues sort of in the land use realm around John's role in representing Connecticut planners at the legislature. And I wanted to start, John, with the tiny house movement. I think it's something that's really exciting for folks. They're seeing uh, stories on the news or in their local newspapers. They're seeing folks in their communities moving into these tiny houses. Tell me a little bit about your role in this movement in Connecticut and what's happening in Connecticut with this. Sure. Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of ways to to kind of attack this. And although I've I will confess I've been very interested in the idea of tiny houses um, for a number of years now. Um, I I haven't seen it sort of become a tidal wave or anything like that in in Connecticut. Um, I think in in our state it um, remains something of a curiosity or maybe a little bit of a um, a novelty, um, which is, you know, um, I think prevents anyone from kind of taking it real seriously and also prevents uh, towns from having to really get out ahead of it. You know, like one town might have two or three questions a year about tiny houses and maybe get one or two placed. Um, and and because of the nature of our, how we do land use in Connecticut, um, every town is more or less on their own when it comes to dealing with this. Um, but I'll back up and say uh, a lot of the tiny houses, as they are traditionally um, built and established, are actually not considered structures in many cases. And, mm-hmm. and uh, zoning regulation generally um, uses structures as its basis for regulation. Um, so if they're not considered structures, what are they considered? And how do towns use their regulations, if at all, to navigate this new kind of home? Uh, so because because most of them are um, built uh, these days on uh, trailer bodies, they are considered motor vehicles and not considered structures because they don't have um, permanent location on the ground. They can be towed away by a, a, a truck. Um, and so, you know, as long as they have a license plate and are registered with the DMV, um, they're essentially no different from a, a recreational vehicle or, you know, like a camper trailer um, that you might have. Um, obviously, when someone is interested in um, building it with a foundation, putting it permanently in, you know, their backyard or in an, in an empty field or something like that, then it becomes a, a, a structure that could be, would be subject to uh, local zoning regulation. Um, in most cases, it wouldn't be, well, we'll, we'll split it up. In most cases, it wouldn't be a big deal if you if you basically had a vacant residential lot and you wanted to build a house there that just happened to be real small, it wouldn't be any different from any other um, construction project. Um, 
However, in a number of our towns, and I've been looking at through a number of um, municipal zoning regulations over the last couple of weeks, uh, a lot of towns actually have minimum um, resident sizes, mm. which um, I think has a lot of um, political implications and social justice implications, frankly. Um, but it's not uncommon to see uh, a, like a new single family house be a minimum of 1,200 square feet. And so, you know, a 350 square foot tiny house would not qualify um, to be placed in a number of our towns. And, and I'm speaking more specifically of, you know, our suburban communities and our rural communities. John, from a, just a quality of life aspect, why are people wanting to build and live in these tiny homes? Tiny houses have the advantage of being cheaper to, um, to build than a, a traditional single family house. Um, but that's really only because they are so much smaller. Um, actually, tiny houses very frequently are more expensive on a per square foot basis. Um, so, you know, a, a, a traditional stick built uh, single family residence, you know, might cost you 125 or 150 feet, uh, dollars a square foot to build. A tiny house could be 250 or 200 or 250 square feet um, because there's a lot of the, of the space the space needs to be kind of multifunctional and there's a lot of um, a, sort of a lot more uh, design requirement. Um, but, you know, if you're building a 2000 square foot house at a hundred uh, bucks a square foot, that's $200,000. If you're building a, a 350 square foot tiny house at 200 bucks a foot, you know, you're still only at what $70,000 or something like that. So um, it's cheaper. Um, it's certainly easier to maintain and clean because you're only dealing with 350 square feet. Um, I think people are intrigued by the idea of simplicity and, you know, eliminating clutter and hassle and, and, you know, sort of the tyranny of the things you own, you know, kind of controlling you. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the idea of being able to live more cheaply and more simply um, is appealing. And then, which is to, which is interesting that it would not, it hasn't really spread dramatically in Connecticut because we are a very expensive place to live, <laughs> particularly if you're looking to own a, a single family residence. Um, yeah, John, in addition to the regulatory issues that towns are struggling with, what other challenges are our cities and towns facing with this kind of house? I know there was an example in New Haven recently. Right. Well, so it's right. Um, so the example in New Haven that that spurred a uh, an NBC Connecticut TV um, art piece on it about a young couple in New Haven who bought uh, and built a, a tiny house and um, have been living in it at one of the marinas in New Haven. Um, and there was some question from a regulatory standpoint of um, if that was a legitimate use, if you know, essentially a residence in a in a trailer. Um, was 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 legal uh, in the Marina District. Um, what the sort of the, the tax implications and the um, the emergency management implications are um, for having these folks there, um, and that's that would be the basis of a lot of uh, community concern. Um, if you basically are establishing permanent residence um, on someone else's property. Uh, it, the, the emergency, the emergency crews, you know, how do you get your mail? How does the ambulance know how to find you? How do fire crews know how to find you? Um, and so those become some of the, some of the 
municipal public health and safety concerns that you have to struggle with when um, considering allowing these uses um, or trying to, you know, keep track of them. John, do you think that this will become a movement that will catch on more? Where in the country are we seeing more of this? And do you think Connecticut is just on the verge of seeing quite a bit more of this? Um, I think it will become more prevalent over time in Connecticut. Uh, I where we're seeing it a lot is uh, the West Coast, California, um, particularly particularly California, Northern California, where real estate prices are completely insane. Um, and in areas of, you know, outside Seattle and Portland, Oregon, um, where you have uh, a lot of population growth, very high real estate prices, and a lot of um, younger people, you know, millennials um, trying to establish, uh, you know, their own space. I was going to ask you that with the demographic, is it more popular with the younger generation or are you also seeing folks that are downsizing after, you know, they've raised kids in a suburban style home doing this as well? Right. I think, I think I, I don't have the specific numbers on it, but my, my sense is um, from some of the articles I've read and frankly from uh, some of the, you know, your HGTV uh, you know, there are a couple of cable shows that are dedicated to tiny house living um, a lot of the people they feature tend to be in those, uh, you know, baby boomer, early empty nester types and uh, millennials trying to basically establish their first, you know, ownership residence. Um, my, my fellow Gen Xers uh, tend to be left out of this uh, for now. I'm a Gen Xer too, so I can relate to that. John, I know you represent Connecticut planners at the legislature in Connecticut. I'd be interested if there are other issues that are in the works for this upcoming legislative session or other issues that are timely that you all have been working to advocate for. Sure. Well, I think um, the, so, so specifically, I am the co-chair of the Government Relations Committee of the Connecticut Chapter of the American Planning Association. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm responsible for sort of identifying and shepherding our legislative agenda and also uh, you know, playing defense on, on legislation that would um, harm uh, our communities, um, our planning efforts in Connecticut. Uh, the issue of uh, things like tiny houses really started for us a couple of years ago, um, probably four years ago now, we worked with Senator Austin on a, um, a bill for temporary healthcare structures, um, which passed into law about three years ago. And temporary healthcare structures are very similar to tiny houses. Um, and they're, they're also sort of um, uh, humorously referred to as granny pods, um, which, are, which are basically tiny houses um, that are placed, that are meant to be placed in the backyard of a relative's house. So say you have an older relative who breaks a hip um, and, you know, lives in an old Victorian house with, you know, steep stairways and can't get up and down um, and you don't have, you know, the ability to, to, to care for them in your house uh, with, a, you know, ADA accessible and safety things. Um, so there are these, these um, temporary healthcare structures that can be brought in uh, and placed in, in someone's backyard and hooked up to the well and, um, and you, uh, you know, have your, have your family member there. Uh, while they are uh, healing up um, or while they are, you know, recovering from injury or, or um, it could be even from a longer term basis. But um, so, so Senator Austin introduced a bill that would basically allow these units to be placed on um, re in residential lots as of right. Um, and it basically, again, because Connecticut municipalities 
have have 169 different ways of regulating land use. Um, and there are all kinds of tricky ways that um, towns can, you know, make something impossible to build, even if they don't outright uh, outlaw it um, by, you know, requiring massive setbacks or um, have really onerous, you know, public hearing requirements or something like that. So uh, Senator Austin basically stated when it made a policy statement that um, allowing these structures and allowing um, families to have this option um, to house their to house their um, relatives in a time of uh, health need uh, outweighed the need for local control of, of zoning regulation. Um, so she basically passed this law that required all towns to allow them, uh, allow temporary healthcare structures to be placed as of right, which is to say no, no public hearing, no variance, no um, you know, special review process. Um, of course, she built it. Uh, we built it in with a an opt out clause, which is, I think, the first time this has been used in in Connecticut state statutes. That it becomes an automatic law in every town, unless the town proactively opts out. And that opt out would have required um, both the Planning and Zoning Commission, or specifically the Zoning Commission, and the governing body, the Board of Selectmen, in most towns to both say, yes, we don't want to do this. Um, so the, the bar was actually relatively high for towns to say, no, we don't want to do this. So it's now been passed as legislation and how many towns have opted out and how many towns are seeing these being built? Um, about, uh, we, we tried to do a poll and we got about 90 responses um, from the communities and about, ha about half actually did choose to opt out. Um, a number of towns chose to opt out because they had their own um, regulations in place for structures like these. Um, but, you know, a, la a large number of towns, and I think for all, probably probably most of the towns we didn't hear from probably did not um, take the steps to opt out and just kind of let it, let it go. Um, I've only heard about a couple of these, and it's been law for about three years. Um, I've only heard about a couple of these being um, proposed. Uh, I'm still actually waiting to see the, I'd love to, you know, go see the first one um, be placed in Connecticut. But as far as I know that we haven't built one or I haven't been in the loop on that. That would be fun to see it. Yeah. John, in general, you know, we're always coaching our towns to streamline their land use regulatory process as much as they can to become business friendly, to be developer friendly to the developments that they want to see, where they want to see them in town. Has your group been active in this effort? Uh, yes. I, and I think that hasn't been... Um, part of our overall legislative agenda per se, um, because again, those, those are, we're seeking changes at the state level. Um, wherever I personally work, and I think a number of my planning colleagues work in towns, um, we do take that approach. You know, if you're not getting the kind of development that you want, fix your regs, you know? Um, and and my, my own sort of mantra of, of regulatory development and change is, you know, make it as easy as possible to get the kind of development that you want. Um, you know, if, if you if you see a project that you like, help it, you know, um, whether that through a regulatory change or, you know, some sort of incentive system. Um, but that's definitely the the approach that we, we advocate for um, as planners. Uh, but at the at the state level, we are looking more at um, policy change to 
uh, encourage things like um, increased housing density in areas of infrastructure. Um, and, and, you know, so I would actually bring it back to the question of tiny houses and in the same sort of category as temporary healthcare structures. Both of these are, are would in, in many cases would be broadly considered um, accessory dwelling units or ADUs. Um, and in a number of states, um, I believe in, in several counties in California, um, in Oregon, maybe in Portland, Oregon, or maybe in Oregon as a whole, and in Minnesota, um, the state legislatures are all considering laws that would basically make accessory dwelling units as of right. And so whether that took the form of a duplex, you know, splitting out a duplex or a, an in-law apartment inside a single family house or adding, a, you know, a tiny house or, a, you know, a, a cottage out back, um, those things would become as of right. And so immediately every residential property in the state, you know, every single family residential property in the state would instantly um, be eligible for a second dwelling unit there. Um, and, and we've doubled our density in residential areas, at least in theory. Um, and that would, that has, um, a, you know, a lot of that comes from um, economic development and, you know, sort of smart growth. You've already got houses there. Why not add more people to your neighborhoods? Um, but it also has, you know, housing and social justice implications because these accessory dwelling units, whether it's a, you know, in-law in apartment or a duplex or a, or a tiny house or a cottage out back, those tend to be more affordable. Those tend to be rental units and, and those um, tend to be available to people who are at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Um, and that's something that Connecticut doesn't have nearly enough of. Agreed. And I'll be interested to see with our new legislature sitting, um, you know, whether there will be any additional appetite for these efforts that your group is working toward. Anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I think the, the, um, our big legislative push when it comes to housing over this next session is, um, a, is, a, is, a, is a two-part bill that almost passed last year um, under, the, under the number uh, House Bill 6749. Um, that was a, a bill introduced by Representative McCarthy Vahey from Fairfield, who chairs the Planning and Development Committee um, and is a fantastic advocate for housing. Um, we're going to revisit that this year and, and uh, as planners are going to strongly advocate for it. It has two major components. Um, the first is a cleanup of uh, section 8-2 of the Connecticut General Statutes, which is the zoning enabling statute, um, which is a, a mess of words. Um, it, is, it is, you know, James Joycean in its um, complex sentence structure um, and very difficult to follow. And so the first part of that would clean it up and separate clauses at, you know, in, 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 with semicolons and make it clear what, what the intent is. It would strengthen the responsibility um, of each community uh, in, in writing their zoning regulations in such a way that, that fair and affordable housing are uh, proactively promoted. It would make it absolutely clear that that is a town's responsibility. Um, so that would be the first part of the bill. The second part is that um, two years ago in 2017, a law passed, Public Act 17170, that required every municipality in the state um, to prepare and update every five years uh, a, a, an affordable housing plan. And uh, that would describe how each municipality will, will 
you know, provide for and construct more affordable housing in their town. Um, and so that's a new requirement as of two years ago. However, there are, associated with that law are absolutely no standards, no guidance, no procedure for approval, um, no procedure for state review, and no penalty if the municipality is not in compliance. So, you know, from the basic um, standpoint, who in town writes this? Is it the Board of Selectmen? Do you establish a housing committee? Is it the Planning Commission? Um, and who approves it? Is it town meeting? Is it just a vote of the Planning and Zoning Commission? Um, and and how do you know if you have done a good job? Um, and the one, then what's the penalty if you don't? And And none of those questions were answered. So the second part of this bill that we're proposing along with Representative McCarthy Vahey would require the Commissioner of Housing or the Secretary of OPM. This is still a little bit up in the air. Um, it would require one of the major um, uh, uh, bodies at the state, one of the cabinet departments um, to establish those criteria to basically say what an affordable housing plan ought to uh, include What's the procedure for approving it? Um, and how do you know if it's um, done or not? And who at the state reviews it? Have any of the towns actually taken it upon themselves to do a plan yet? Yes, um, a number of towns have done that. Um, probably the, the best example of a great, simple, thoughtful plan um, is uh, Salisbury in Northwest Connecticut. Um, I was just, so I would encourage your listeners to check that one out. I would also, um, you know, doing a little log rolling for myself, we wrote one here in Essex um, that, that establishes um, some benchmarks and identifies uh, some potential properties around town that could be developed in the future with some affordable housing. Um, I believe Stonington has done one, Fairfield has done one, um, but each of those are very different from each other. Um, and, you know, which, you know, they might all be right for their community but it's also possible that none of them include the detail that the, the legislature wants. Um, so we're gonna hope to clarify that in the next legislative session. Thanks, John. That's a great effort for the planners and I wish you all the best in the next legislative session. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us about tiny houses, accessory dwelling units, granny pods, and all the other efforts that the land use planners in Connecticut are advocating for with our state. Thanks, Courtney. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Circonomy, and be sure to visit circ.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover bonus content. Until next time.